This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. Then, Dutch historian Rutger Bregman joined me to talk about his timely new book, Humankind, A Hopeful History. Rutger delves into the evidence for why and how most humans are actually pretty decent and just how radical it is to believe this. Then, finally, Dr Emma Shortus, an expert in US politics from RMIT, joined me to examine the protests occurring across North America in response to the police killing of African-American George Floyd. And I welcome Ben now via Skype. Hey there, Ben. How are you? Hey, I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Good to hear your voice. It's great to be with you again and I hope you're doing well. Hope you have a heater close by because it's getting a bit crazy, isn't it? Oh, look, I'm actually just under the doona right now on my mobile phone, mate. I'm not coming out. <laughs> That's good. Do it when you can. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've, like, I've got like three layers, so I'm close enough to a doona. Um, now, Ben, there's uh, so many things happening, but one of the most important things that has happened uh, that was announced essentially on Friday, and it's not really a surprising announcement, but it is an important one, and that is that the coalition government um, announced on Friday afternoon that they would be returning $721 million to people who had paid a so-called debt, quote-unquote, um, that they supposedly owed to Centrelink, um, and that was the debts that were issued using this computer-generated, al- computer-used algorithm that was generating debts, uh, looking at the ATO's data and then pairing that with Centrelink reporting. And of course, we've been speaking about this issue for a number of years because it has been such an ongoing saga. Uh, but could you share with us the significance of this announcement and also how the government has been communicating communicating it and um, perhaps uh, putting their head in the sand a little bit in terms of um, their responsibility for it. Yeah, well, uh, first thing I wanted to say is congratulations, Amy, for all of the work you've done tracking the robo-debt problem over nearly five years now. Um, You know, you were one of the um, first journalists and and broadcasters to talk about this issue seriously, Um, and and I think it's the combined work of a a large coalition of civil society campaigners uh, like Asher Wolf um, Mm. and Lindsay Connors and people like that who've really uh, brought the robo-debt scandal Um, finally to its knees and it's finally been halted by the government as a result of a high court action um, that was undertaken by um, a a number of um, uh, public interest lawyers on behalf of welfare recipients, which has finally convinced the government that it was going to lose, that uh, its debts were never lawful uh, and that this uh, disgusting welfare program of uh, basically of income averaging, the idea that you could just divide someone's ATO income by 26 fortnights and come up with the figure for what their income was for the entire year and use that as a mechanism to levy a welfare debt on them. That idea, I think, has finally been found to be unlawful. And now the government has so much egg on its face, it's got to pay back three quarters of a billion dollars to people affected by this, perhaps more than 600,000 welfare recipients, we believe. 
Yeah, and this is only going to include those who were targeted after 2015. And they said that uh, people prior to 2015 that were relevant, um, it would be too difficult to to find them, to get in touch with them. So um, they've nominated the time as being from 2015 onwards. Um, and the number of people that this relates to is quite staggering at 460,000. So, I mean, this is an issue that has really touched and affected so many people and put a lot of stress on um, a number of people who've been financially vulnerable. Um, And the government over the weekend, particularly the Attorney-General Christian Porter, as you say, conceded that it was unlawful, however, um, stopped short of apologising. Yeah, kind of amazing, really. The government uh, basically refusing to apologise for a a tremendously damaging program, you know, but that's par for the course for the Morrison government. Uh, Robotech goes right to the top. I mean, Christian Porter was the social services minister when the online compliance initiative was first um, implemented. And the idea was really dreamed up by Scott Morrison um, when he was the social services minister and then the treasurer. Uh, So the the government... um, has all the responsibility here. Um, And, you know, as well as that, it sort of corrupted the public service in a way too because we had very senior members of the public service go into bat for the government and repeatedly obfuscate or even lie at Senate inquiries. Um, And that's why we're now seeing calls for a judicial inquiry into robo-debt to try and get to the bottom of exactly what went on because clearly the government knew that this was dodgy pretty early. It probably knew it was unlawful from as early as 2016 when the Administrative Appeals Tribunal ruled that it wasn't able to use the averaging mechanism to to raise these debts. Um, and yet the government has um, ploughed ahead with it really until it was forced to stop by this high court action. And in terms of the way that the government, including Scott Morrison yesterday, has really deflected criticism about this, it's been quite shocking, really. You kind of think that you're in an alternate universe and perhaps this isn't actually happening and they didn't do the wrong thing because it's almost like um, there's nothing to see here in the, in their behaviour. Do you, It's kind of a little bit effective, I guess, in a sense, because we're not seeing huge amounts of criticism and Scott Morrison's polling is still, um, as of course, it's a superficial measure, but it hasn't been dented by this. Uh, what are your thoughts on how um, the government and their messaging on this has seemingly been quite s- successful at deflecting criticism? Well, I guess uh, welfare bashing has always been part of this government's, you know, op- modus operandi, uh, and so it's very hard for this government to walk away from welfare bashing. Um, but having said that, I do think this is tremendously damaging for the Morrison government, particularly when we see that, you know, at least a million more Australians are on the welfare rolls at the moment. That's not even counting JobKeeper. Um, and the government's announced that it's going to restart mutual obligation within a fortnight or so. Um, and that's going to that's going to uh, bring a whole bunch of people into the tremendously inefficient and unjust um, job network system, the kind of bureaucratic gulag that forces people to hunt for non-existent jobs in return for getting their benefits. So um, I, I think this is damaging for the Morrison government. Um, perhaps it hasn't got the kind of blanket coverage that it deserves. The government li- dribbled out the news on a Friday afternoon to try and bury it, um, but it's not going away. 
Um, and I, I think there'll be more calls for a judicial inquiry um, and more calls uh, for some responsibility here, for some accountability. Uh, no one's lost their job as a result of this bungle. Mm. Um, you know, all the ministers involved are still in cabinet. Um, the Department of the, the, the Secretary of the Department, Catherine Campbell, the person most responsible uh, from the bureaucracy for implementing this, um, she, she got a, a, a an Australia Day Honour medal, um, and she's continued on in the public service. Uh, so, you know, there's been no accountability whatsoever. And remember, you know, when people criticised this program, the government cracked down hard on that criticism. Uh, a journalist, Andy Fox, who published a personal account of her experience with robo-debt, she had her private information leaked to the media. Um, you know, so there's been all sorts of terrible actions going on by the government. Um you know, I, I think this is not going away, in short. Yeah, exactly. And it is something that even the government has flagged in, in private correspondence that they may not let go. Um, we obviously know that income compliance is an ongoing feature of the welfare system. However, um, The Guardian was looking at some correspondence between the Solicitor General and uh, ministers and was suggesting that uh, perhaps they could enshrine in legislation um, at a future debt recovery program um, that utilised tax income data. What are your thoughts on the the ongoing fixation uh, on welfare recipients and also whether there is or could be potential pushback given that there are so many more people entering the welfare system because of the coronavirus pandemic. So, I mean, any pushback will be temporary and will be politically expedient, but it won't change the core government ideology of the Morrison government, which is that people on welfare don't deserve it, uh, that if you're on welfare, it's your fault. Uh, and we're seeing that the government is desperate to try and wind back JobKeeper as soon as it can. Uh, we've seen a bunch of announcements from Scott Morrison that he might try to end JobKeeper early or that he might try to – well, he has just announced that he's reintroducing mutual obligation. Um, so I don't think the, the leopard has changed its spots. Um, and the underlying ideology, the neoliberal ideology, that people who are on welfare are there because of their own personal failings, that hasn't changed in the government either. Yeah, and it is um, something that is going to be such an ongoing issue given the state of the Australian economy. And a number of people have been critical about the government's uh, consistent denial almost about the economic reality that we are facing. And as you've referenced there, there is an end date to JobKeeper and also the uh, coronavirus supplement that is part of the JobSeeker payment at the moment, and that is in September. And there is this assumption that there will be some kind of uh, magical economic uh, recovery, some kind of um, business-led growth uh, at that point that will bring Australia back from the brink and uh, perhaps we won't avoid recession, but there will be something else that means uh, the Australian government doesn't have to keep um, doling out the cash. What are your thoughts on this approach um, that Josh Frydenberg, the Treasurer, and Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, are taking? 
So I'm increasingly of the opinion that Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, is simply out of his depth, that the scale of this crisis is beyond his capabilities as the treasurer. As for the prime minister, I think um, there's a firm belief there from from Morrison that, uh, that the economy will snap back, as he's been saying, you know, that, that once the shops start to open again and the schools go back, the economy will gradually recover um, and we'll be able to get back to business. And I just don't believe that that will be reflected in the economic figures as we approach September and October. Um, this is a deep recession. It's the deepest recession in 90 years since the Great Depression. Um, if you look at some of the metrics, like the number of hours worked in the economy, they're down by 20%. You know, that's a pretty amazing level of labor that's been subtracted from the economy. Uh, you cannot but have a very deep recession with that level of demand dropping off. Um, and it's not going away. You know, um, we're only now seeing some of the most important sectors start to feel the effects of the downturn, like housing construction. Um, and to the government's credit, they are talking about maybe some kind of fourth stimulus package that might address things like housing construction. And that's where these rumours about a government program uh, to give you money for your home renovations are coming from. We, we might see an announcement about that later this week. Um, but there's been nothing for the university sector, which has started to lay off high-paid, high-skilled jobs in mass uh, this week. We saw 400 people fired from Deakin University this week. Um, and we're starting to see job losses in other sectors that are downstream of the really badly affected sectors from COVID. Um, so not just the initially badly affected sectors like culture and accommodation, um, tourism and travel and things like that, but down downwind, if you like, downstream. So as people have started to stop spending, um, that's flowing through the economy and affecting retail sales. It's affecting, yes, housing construction and all sorts of other parts of the economy. So this is a deep downturn and it's not going away anytime soon. Indeed. And even if uh, shops are gradually reopening, as we're seeing as of yesterday, there is a very gradual easing here in Victoria of restrictions. It doesn't necessarily mean that consumer confidence and uh, consumer spending will increase, does it, Ben? Oh, no, I don't think so. And I think the real concern from some economists is have we seen a kind of permanent reset to people's consumption expectations? You know, so are people simply um, going to recalibrate what they spend their money on? And, mm. you know, a whole bunch of people have spent 10 weeks in lockdown not spending very much money, not going out very often, not going to cafes, not going to restaurants. Um, suddenly a whole bunch of us have realized that we can get by on a whole lot less spending than we used to. Yeah. I know I have. Um, so that's probably great for um, ordinary people's peace of mind and well-being and, and their individual bank balances, but that's terrible for the economy because uh, my spending is your earning. And so if everyone spends less, you get what we call the paradox of thrift. Um, and that drops demand across the whole economy. And that's the kind of thing that we're facing, I think, with this downturn. Mm, it's so true. You kind of realise, do I really need that, seeing as I've really managed quite well without it all? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think, you know, um, some of the more interesting kind of forward thinking um, people are looking at this and wondering, you know, is what's the economy going to look like on the other side of this in 2021? It might mm. be quite a different structure of our entire economy. You know, Western economies have been tremendously geared towards consumption, often frivolous consumption mm. um, in the last couple of decades. 
Um, is that really what they're going to look like uh, after this? It's really hard to tell, I think. Um, you know, and that's not even talking about the people who've lost their jobs, had their hours cut back, had their pay cut. Those people have to spend less. They have no choice. Yeah, it, it is a welcome um, potential shift given we need to uh, manage our consumption and contain um, our uh, I guess, use of resources. Um, In terms of the economic statistics, I believe the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, will deliver the official economic growth figure for the March quarter uh, tomorrow. And this is uh, very much making people a bit apprehensive, but it's also quite a predictable outcome in terms of um, economists really already know that um, things are going to be in particularly dire straits. Um, could you share with us the significance of these kind of things like um, the quarterly growth figures and what does that mean in terms of a recession? So, I mean, I think it's always important to separate the statistics from the reality Okay, what the statistics measure is a complicated set of tables that the Bureau of Statistics calls the national accounts. Um, and there, you know, there's a bunch of maths in there by which they come up with a measure for the size of the economy. Okay, that's what GDP is. They call it gross domestic product. It's the size of the domestic economy. Now, most people expect that the figure will be uh, in the negative. It means that the economy has shrunk. It has contracted. Um, And, of course, if the economy shrinks over a period of time, that's a recession. And if it shrinks badly enough, that's a depression. Uh, So that's the significance. It's not about the figure itself um, or how high the figure is. It's actually about what's happening in the real economy. And as we know, people have been thrown out of work. Businesses have had to close. Spending has fallen. um, and, And that's the real world impact. And that's what I'd like people to focus on. Mm, and no doubt their minds are focused on that if they are very much uh, feeling the brunt of, of those economic um, issues and changes. Uh, I was looking at the jobs lost by industry. Um, and of course, some of these industries will um, see a kind of increase in, in revenue and potentially jobs again, given that uh, people will now be able to travel and um, utilise short-term accommodation and those kind of things. Uh, but the highest, um, the, the sector that is was affected the most was accommodation and food services at a 27.1% reduction in jobs, or they were actually the jobs that were lost. Um, the arts comes next at 19%. And uh, rental and real estate services at 12.8, professional services at 11.1, and the list goes on. Um, so it's very interesting to see, it's particularly those top two sectors that have been really um, greatly affected. I know we've spoken about the arts quite a lot. Um, do you think that the state governments and what they've been trying to do to fill the hole that the government, the federal government has left is actually enough for sectors like the art sector where uh, they're still going to be quite affected, particularly I'm thinking about performances where um, large groups of people uh, may not be returning to, to, to those types of venues for quite a while. Yeah, no, it's really bad in the arts. Uh, it's really bad in hospitality um, and the arts in particular. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote an article in The Guardian about this last week, actually, where I looked at the state and territory bailout packages for the arts and culture. 
Um, and, you know, they're significant. If you add them up across the country, they're about $130 million of new money that the states and territories have pumped into the sector as a kind of emergency measures. But it just doesn't touch the sides um, compared to how deep this crisis is. Uh, so, you know, um, and it's a lot of jobs as well. That's the other thing. Um, if you look at um, the number of people employed in culture, um, it's about it was about 350,000 um, before the downturn. Um, if you add in hospitality, that's probably close to a million or more. Um, and, and if you then say that there's been, you know, a 25% loss of jobs in these sectors, that's hundreds of thousands of jobs that have been lost. Um, so that kind of shows the scale of the problem. Um, the federal government has the most money and they're the ones that can do the stimulus um, and they haven't done much really, particularly for the arts. In fact, we heard uh, just this morning that there was a meeting of the Cultural Minister's Council with all the state and territory and the federal arts minister, Paul Fletcher, in which the states and territories pressed Fletcher for a bailout for the arts to extend JobKeeper to parts of the cultural industries that weren't getting it, and Fletcher refused. And I think that's kind of of a keeping with the government's, the Morrison government's determination not to bail out certain sectors for ideological reasons, and that we've seen the same problem with the universities. Yeah, yeah, it is very concerning. And um, and also, uh, given that the arts sector is such a huge earner for the economy, um, it's really quite surprising that it's not more of a priority at that very rational level. Um, what I wanted to also touch on um, was another issue that perhaps on the surface doesn't seem like a big deal, but in practice, it kind of does have some important implications. And that was the announcement from Scott Morrison that they will be scrapping COAG, um, which is the meeting of the state and federal governments at a very kind of frequent um kind of time frame where they all come together and talk about particular policy areas and coordinate. And uh, given the success um, of National Cabinet, Scott Morrison has decided that uh, that will replace COAG. Now, that has some very important practical effects um, in, ter in terms of accountability and transparency, uh, given that Cabinet secrecy uh, will apply to that. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the scrapping of COAG? Yeah, so that's right. Um, Scott Morrison has announced that he will um, get rid of the so-called COAG meetings, which were kind of twice yearly meetings of the feds, the states and the territories, and also the local governments were invited to those COAG meetings. So there were a very good coordination mechanism across all three layers of government, and he's replaced that with his newfangled National Council, which has been operating since the pandemic crisis began and which features the Prime Minister and the state and territory premiers and chief ministers. Um, now, there's some arguments that the National Cabinet works more effectively, more kind of flexibly than COAG. COAG was a very bureaucratic mechanism and it was often the scene of kind of trench warfare between um, Canberra and the states. <clears throat> but there's also the fact that it's quite a long and old institution um, and it was effective at that kind of lower level of the bureaucracy where the various bureaucrats would meet together and try and thrash policies out um, at the lower level, you know, below that of the ministers and the, and the prime minister. 
Will National Cabinet uh, fulfill that same coordination role? That's a really interesting question. The other thing is National Cabinet will be subject to um, Cabinet secrecy. So uh, it will no longer be uh, as transparent as COAG was. And I think that's a concern. Indeed. And of course, um, so many journalists and people of the public will know that freedom of information requests uh, are very difficult to get through at the best of times, um, but now they will not be really, um, that won't be a mechanism that people can pursue, uh, whereas with COAG, they would have been able to uh, make applications through the FOI process. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that stuff will now be secret for 30 years, I believe. <laughs> so there'll uh, yeah, be plenty of veils laid across plenty of national secrets there. Um, look, you know, there's one of these kind of gimmicks that uh, prime ministers do from time to time. I wonder mm. if a future prime minister simply goes back to COAG, um, you know, uh, because COAG has its advantages too. Uh, so I wouldn't get too caught up in the change of terminology. Now, there's one other gimmick that we've kind of seen, and of course we know that Scott Morrison is a marketing man, and uh, he gave a speech at the National Press Club trying to lay out some form of a vision. Um, it kind of seemed like he was clutching at straws a bit, um, but he termed his vision job maker, which hasn't really caught on all that much. Uh, but he was talking about industrial relations and skills and was trying to um, downplay or reduce uh, the kind of antagonism that has been stoked essentially by the coalition government between unions and employers and the federal government. What are your thoughts on that um, attempt at a reset of relations and, and is that really a genuine reset? Yeah, this happened last week. Morrison gave a speech to the National Press Club, which is often a set-piece occasion for Prime Ministers to lay out a vision, um, but it wasn't much of a vision. He talked about an accord, a new accord, um, harking back to Labor's agreement with the trade union movement in the early 1980s under Bob Hawke. But unlike that agreement, this would be some kind of compact between business and the trade unions. Um, there's not a lot of confidence that there'll be any kind of agreement between those two uh, obviously opposed groups within our society. Um, and of course, at the moment, all of the cards are stacked in favour of the bosses are in a deep recession. Um, there's you know, millions of people out of work looking for work. So industrial relations, it's always a battlefield, but um, no one really believes that this government in particular actually wants industrial peace to break out. Um, they've been assiduous in uh, winding back uh, industrial relations rights and conditions for workers. And, of course, until very recently, the Morrison government was pursuing its uh, Ensuring Integrity Bill, which was going to crack down on trade unions with a very heavy hand. Uh, so uh, I think it's largely rhetoric. I don't believe this government actually wants uh, any kind of an agreement between unions and big bosses. Mm, yeah. Um, and in terms of the other issue um, and news that was uh, released on a Friday, which seems to be quite popular at the moment, um, we were looking at some new figures on greenhouse gas emissions um, and the data was uh, released on Friday. There was um, an interesting trend, a change in 
the trends. Um, slightly hopeful change, but not really um, all that inspiring. Uh, in terms of Australia's history of gas, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, as we all are probably familiar with, um, under the carbon price, our greenhouse gas emissions fell by 2.4%. And then after um, the carbon price was repealed, they rose by 2.8%. And last year, there was a huge amount of argy-bargy and um, discussion of the greenhouse gas emissions figures because the government uh, essentially wanted to deny that they were going up and uh, suggested, well, they were using some weasel words around um, around these emissions figures. Where are we at now in terms of uh, Australia's greenhouse gas emissions and the trend? So Australia's greenhouse gas emissions did fall uh, for the first time really since the Morrison, well, the Abbott government was elected in 2013. Um, you, you might recall that back in the dim distant past of the Gillard government, we had a, a, an actual carbon tax and that was reducing Australia's emissions. They were going down while the economy was growing. Um, and now we've got the um, kind of the opposite where the economy is falling and that's dragging carbon emissions down with it. The reason is not because of any government policy, it's because the economy is in deep trouble um, and people are simply using less energy. Um, and so that's the reason for it. Um, but there's no policy in place, obviously, uh, to keep the emissions down when the economy recovers. Uh, so, you know, and, and it highlights really the, the, the lack of any kind of proper greenhouse gas emissions policy from this government. And of course, you know, we don't expect one. This government's policy is really let it burn. Um, but, you know, we're missing a tremendous opportunity here. We could be using this crisis to invest in green energy programs, in renewables um, and all sorts of other green technologies as a stimulus, as a way to get people back to work. And that would have two effects. It would help with greenhouse gas emissions and it would help the economy um, but we're unlikely to see any kind of Green New Deal from the Morrison government, of course. No, and we have seen uh, an ongoing fixation with gas as a transition fuel. Um, it has been quite rigorously debunked as being a, a useful transition fuel um, in terms of reducing our greenhouse gases. Um, what are your thoughts on the coalition's current discussions around gas and their promotion of gas projects and uh, people, uh, influential leaders associated with the gas industry? Yes, yeah, so one of the things that the Morrison government did early on in the pandemic, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's kind of so risible. One of the things they did is they set up this kind of economic commission, I guess, on what to do with the recovery. And then they stacked it with fossil fuel executives, people like Nev Power, the former boss of Fortescue Metals, um, sort of uh, former 2IC to Twiggy Forest. And, and the plan that those guys came up with was gas. They were going to drive Australia's economic recovery by drilling more gas and exporting more gas, uh, which, you know, most people would agree uh, – it is a bit of a dumb move because, firstly, gas doesn't create a lot of jobs. It's actually really low employer. Uh, you know, you've got some fantastic plants. You've got some big shiny pipes and kind of big ships that sail off to Asia. Uh, but there's just not a lot of employment in that sector. So if you were wanting a, an economic stimulus, uh, gas would be sort of very low down on your list, except, of course, if you, you're a group of fossil fuel executives. Um, so it's pretty naked. It's, it's pretty um, open. Uh, but that's how the Morrison government rolls, really. Mm. Um, 
Ben, it's been so great to chat with you and cover such a diverse range of subjects and uh, also to talk about um, a good development in the robo-debt uh, scheme, which is that um, repayment uh, to those people who were subject to debt notices using that algorithm. It's nice to see that some things are changing and that hopefully that will help those people who had to give up potentially a large amount of money that they were reliant on. Can, can I recommend an article by Asha Wolf uh, in mm. yesterday's Canberra Times? Yes. Uh, it's entitled, RoboDebt Was an Algorithmic Weapon of Calculated Political Cruelty. Yep, I'll um, retweet it. It is a great article. And, yeah, shout out to Asha and all of her um fellow uh, advocates who have been working on this issue and you of course Ben as well it's um just goes to show that uh, journalism is really important as is citizen advocacy and that we shouldn't give up even when things do look uh, dire and uh, sometimes these are a very long-term thing thank you Amy thanks so much Ben this is a podcast from Triple R an independent media organization in Melbourne Australia To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And I'm really delighted to have with me someone who I've actually met in person before the coronavirus pandemic happened. His name is Rutger Bregman, and he is a historian, and he's the author of a couple of books now, one of which we discussed over, I think it was in 2017. It's called Utopia for Realists, and this new book that Rutger has written is called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And it's out through Bloomsbury, as was Utopia for Realists. Mm -hmm. So I welcome uh, Rutger now, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, it is really great. It's kind of weird to have met in person and now be restricted so Uh severely. (laughs) And I wonder maybe first up, given that you've just released this book in the UK, and I know you're about to release it in America, uh-huh. and obviously um, around the world. But in terms of your experience releasing such a uplifting or optimistic book in a time of global crisis, how's your experience been going in terms of talking about these ideas? Well, I guess that many readers have the feeling that the message of the book is maybe quite timely, right? Uh, Actually, the first two chapters of the book are about how people respond to crises. And there's this very old idea in our culture, specifically in Western culture, that when the shit hits the fan, that people basically go nuts, right? That in a time of, uh, of crisis, an earthquake or a tsunami uh, or another kind of natural disaster or during a war, that people sort of revert to their worst selves, that they become very selfish animals, monsters, and that civilization is only a very thin veneer. And this is a story that we've been told so often, you know, in, in disaster movies from Hollywood, uh, in the news, the, you often see it. Uh, in the book, I give the example of what happened after Katrina in 2005 when New Orleans was flooded. And the news is full of stories about people looting and plundering and, you know, being violent. Um, and it turns out that this is actually wrong. So we've got a huge amount of evidence, more than 700 case studies from sociology, Uh, that prove that what happens in a time of crisis is that people pull together and you get this explosion of altruism and cooperation. And I think that if you zoom out a little bit and look at what's been happening around the globe, you know, in country after country, then sure, you can see some selfish behavior and 
you can count on journalists to zoom in on that, you know, people hoarding toilet paper, for example. But I think the vast majority of your behavior is really cooperative in nature. So, um, yeah, in that sense, um, the message is maybe quite timely. Yeah, reading the book during this time, I really felt like it was an antidote to some of the more cynical news that we've been seeing and also the videos of people, as you mentioned, stockpiling toilet paper, Mm -hmm. which I'm glad to hear was not just an Australian phenomenon. (laughs) But um, you do open the book, the prologue of the book talks about a really uh, important time in World War II and the thinking that was behind the decision to not only bomb London and England, but also to bomb Germany, and that we technically learned some lessons there, but hadn't really later on implemented any of those learnings. I wonder if you could talk about the example that you give at the beginning of the book, because I feel like it does set up this discussion we're about to delve into really, really well, and I've, I actually thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. So at the beginning, or on the eve of the Second World War, the military elites in Britain were very worried that once the bombs would start falling on London and other cities in the UK, that people would go nuts, right? That people would panic and that the military wouldn't get around to fighting because it would have its hands full controlling the population, right? And there were many psychiatric field hospitals set up because, again, they were so worried that People were going to be really anxious and depressed and and that the spirit of the nation would be broken very quickly. Now, the bombs did start falling in 1940, uh, but pretty much the opposite actually happened. So this sort of keep calm and carry on spirit dawned over Britain, right? We've got these fascinating eyewitness reports of, yeah, people responding in a quite relaxed way and just continuing doing their job. Actually, war production went up quite a bit. And so the question was how to explain all of this. And what the military establishment did, and politicians like Churchill, is they said, oh, now we understand this is like British culture, right? We have such a strong national spirit is that this must explain the behavior of people during this crisis. But then in 1942, they had to decide what they would do with their bombers and airplanes, right? And there are basically two options. You can bomb strategic targets, like factories and railroads, or you can bomb sort of cities and the population itself. Um, and what the what the experts said is, look, um, we, the British, we're very different, obviously. Now, the Germans, they have a very weak moral character, so we can actually bomb them, and it'll be easy to break their spirit because they're very different. And that's what they did. In the end, Germany was bombed 10 times as heavily as, um, as Britain, and... Uh, you know, pretty much the same thing happened again. So after the war, there were teams of economists who went to Germany to study the effects of the bombing. And they found that actually the cities who, you know, were hit the hardest by uh, the Allied forces uh, in that respect, um, they saw increased wartime production uh, compared to cities that were not bombed as heavy. So it was the same mistake made again. And, and it's just what what they thought that it was British culture, while in reality it was human nature, right? It, this is just what people do during times of crisis. They pull together. And that was true for the British and that was true for the Germany as well. But somehow elites keep on making this mistake. Uh, also, for example, during the war in Vietnam, you know, they, they bombed, I don't know, three times as many bombs 
on Vietnam as, as were used in all of the Second World War combined. And again, you know, no results because you can't break the spirit of a people in that way. Often it actually has the opposite effect. Yeah, that was the most interesting part, I feel, in that story, was that it didn't just have a negligible effect. It actually meant that they might have been shooting themselves in the foot by actually conducting such severe bombing raids. Yeah, there are historians who think that because of the bombing campaign over Germany, uh, the war lasted longer. You know, there's, there's one Nobel Prize winning physicist who was also part of the government at that time. I'm forgetting his name. Anyway... Um, he said that probably the, the war could have been over six months earlier if, the, if they had just studied uh, strategic targets. And uh, that makes sense, right? Because they did do a little bit of strategic bombing during the Second World War, you know, especially oil refineries, etc. And that was really effective, actually. At some point, the Germans almost couldn't, you know, uh, use their tanks anymore because they were just out of fuel. Now, just imagine that they would have sort of continued doing this uh, on a rigorous basis, just bo- uh, focus on bombing the industry instead of bombing cities like Dresden, etc. Uh, things could have turned out very differently. Yeah, exactly. Gosh, there's so many parts to this book. And when I was making some notes while I was reading, I was thinking about the different perspectives and research angles that you've really gotten into in this Mm -hmm. book. And I I know that you're a historian and it's very obvious also by the wonderful footnotes in the book, which I've got to say I really enjoyed too, because it did add another layer of meaning as well. But you do use so many other disciplines like philosophy, science and evolution, psychology, sociology, anthropology, economics. There were so many elements to this story and you've brought a lot of academic scholarship to bear that has been, through you, communicated not only in a very uh, understandable way, but also you've had to take a huge step back to look at a really big picture because as this book is titled Humankind, that's exactly what you're looking at. So I, I wanted to get a sense from you before we delve into some of the other areas of the book. When you were writing this as a historian, what were some of your aims in terms of the way you put this together and how you thought it could be best achieved? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that one of the problems with academia these days is that you have so many of these brilliant specialists who are so focused on their you know tiny subject is that they often don't realize what's going on in a field next to theirs right and this is what I literally experienced while writing this book at some point I was interviewing a psychologist her name is Marie Lindegaard and she's done some path-breaking work into the behavior of people during times of uh, when there's sort of a local emergency, you know, someone's drowning or someone's being attacked in the street. And she discovered, based on CCTV footage, right, the sort of the best evidence we have of, of people, how they behave in real life, uh, turns out that in 90% of all cases, people actually help each other. Um, and I was talking to her about this really fascinating research. And then I, you know, I was telling her about uh, things that were happening in biology and evolutionary anthropology and uh, told her that actually biologists now believe that human beings have evolved to be friendly. You know, they literally talk about this concept of survival of the friendliest. And then she said something to me that I that I didn't forget. She said, oh my God, so it's happening there as well, right? So it was also it's also happening in a field next, next to hers. And this is really what the, the book is about. 
It's about the silent revolution that has taken place in science in the past, well, let's say 15 to 20 years. Because scientists from so many disciplines, anthropologists, archaeologists, sociologists, psychologists, they've all moved from a quite cynical view of human nature to a much more hopeful view of human nature. And the only thing that I do in this book is just to connect the dots, right? To show that something bigger is going on. So I really believe that this book was in the air, right? It just... And maybe it just took a time to some time to write it uh, because there are few people who whose job it is these days to well to connect the dots right because we've got all these brilliant specialists doing their great work and I could never have written my book without all that work obviously I really rely on that uh, and we've got you know often journalists who go deep in investigative reporting but sort of the people whose job it is to zoom out. Well, there are few institutions, right? There are p- few people who's, uh, yeah, who are actually being paid to do something like that. So I guess I'm j- I've just been really lucky that I work um, for a Dutch journalism platform called The Correspondent that was founded uh, seven years ago and uh, where I was given the freedom to uh, yeah, basically write whatever I want and uh, then study psychology for a couple of months and then anthropology for a couple of months and then sociology for a couple of months. And uh, yeah, that's, that's how this book was uh, born. It really comes across because there's just so many beautiful elements to it that are weaved together in a way that is very connected. And it's amazing to see your thinking. And I I really appreciated that you stepped out your thinking for the reader so that we could go along your thought journey with you and raising those sceptical points where you're thinking, oh, well, you might say this, but here's my answer to that. One of the things that was particularly interesting to me as someone who appreciates philosophy was how you weaved that through the story and also provided a foundation for looking at things. And you bring uh, across two really important figures, Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I wonder whether you could introduce our listeners to those two very important figures and how they form an important part of this book throughout. Sure. So... Thomas Hobbes was a British philosopher who lived in the 17th century. And he basically believed that in the state of nature, as he called it, uh, you know, in our very deep history, when we still lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers, our lives were pretty terrible. That's what Hobbes believed. So he described it as nasty, brutish and short in his famous words. And he also believed that there was some kind of war of all against all going on back in prehistory. Now, he had some good news as well, because at some point we got out of that. We, we invented this thing called civilization and we appointed a so-called Leviathan, sort of an all-powerful ruler who basically keeps people in check and makes sure they're not, you know, killing each other all the time. Um, so that is sort of his view um, humanity in its state of nature is, you know, very brutish and violent. But luckily, we have this layer of civilization that has been invented, uh, and that keeps us in check. Now, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote his work a century later, right? Th- these guys have never met, but they're always sort of put in opposition to each other. Rousseau said, well, almost exactly the opposite. He said that actually, in the state of nature, we had lives that were pretty good you know we uh, were relatively healthy we were free Uh, these societies were quite peaceful as well Um, but then we made the big mistake of settling down right and and living 
together in a village or a city and inventing agriculture. We, we basically invented civilization. And civilization has been a huge disaster, according to Rousseau. We should never have done it. It, it inaugurated the age of hierarchy, of patriarchy, of inequality, of wars, of famines, of epidemics, etc., etc. And uh, yeah, so this is sort of the big discussion between two of, well, probably the most important pol uh, political philosophers in Western culture. And so the question is obviously, who is right? Yeah, well, <laughs> it is. I have strong feelings about both, which I I won't get into. But yeah, it was always something that I found super fascinating, and particularly Rousseau, because he has some very strong opinions on a range of things, including Rococo art, which gets me a little bit up and about. But um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I I really was keen to talk about this idea of civilization, which uh -huh. is really essential to their arguments as well. Um, and maybe I could get your summation of how Rousseau perceives civilization and why it's such a horrible event. Yeah, yeah. Well, usually Hobbes is described as the realist, right? He's known as the father of realism. While Rousseau is more often described as this romantic revolutionary, this idealist with all his dreams that, you know, are probably a little bit naive. That's what I used to believe, actually, and that's what they taught me, you know, in, in university when I first heard of these names. But actually, while... I was researching this book and I was going deeper and deeper into the latest state of anthropology and archaeology. I started to realize that actually, you know, Rousseau was right about most of the things he said. I read his discourse on inequality again and sort of the, the parts where he writes about, um, yeah, sort of what the transition of being a nomadic and gatherer to being a farmer and a city dweller meant. And then compare it to the latest scientific evidence. And like, this is, this is pretty much it, right? At some point, I had the idea of calling my book Rousseau was right. <laughs> Because we've got now so much evidence that, uh, for example, if you look at war, um, we tend to think that war is this, you know, eternal phenomenon that human beings have always been doing it. It's probably, that's probably not the case. So for 95% of our history, we were nomadic hunter-gatherers, and we've got almost no evidence for warfare among nomadic hunter-gatherers. Not from anthropology, right? From anthropologists who've actually studied nomadic hunter-gatherers who lived in the 19th century or the 20th century and gave us their ethnographic field reports. And also from archaeology, we've got pretty much no evidence from excavations or uh, from looking at cave paintings, for example. I mean, if there really was a war of all against all going on in our deep history. You know, you would expect that at some point an artist from the Stone Age would have said, well, I know what I'm going to make today, you know, I'm going to make a nice drawing of this war of all against all. Uh, but we haven't found it. But then after we settled down, after we became um, farmers and, and started to live in villages and cities, then you do actually uh, find these uh, paintings of, of people engaged in warfare. Um, so here, Rousseau was probably right. If you look at other things, like, for example, his remarks on how healthy people were in the Stone Age, well, again, it seems he was more or less right. If you think about infection diseases, for example, we now know that all these terrible infection diseases like polio and malaria and the plague and 
COVID-19, right? They're all, they're all products of civilization because we live too close to our animals. And uh, they're, yeah, they're, um, they're, in that sense, they're quite recent phenomena. Um, and we also know that actually the lifestyle of nomad, nomadic hunter-gatherers is much healthier than farmers. You know, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you have a varied diet, you know, a bit of vegetable, vegetables, a bit of fruit, a bit of meat. You have a lot of exercise. Now, when you have to uh, farm all the time, you make the same movements every day. You, your, your back starts to burn. You, eat, you have uh, the same menu, right? Uh, grain, grain, grain. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the saying is no pain, no grain. So um, yeah, it's sort of a pretty terrible decision, basically, to become civilized. And uh, it, yeah, it, it, it's in that sense really interesting that this French guy who has so often been dismissed as the romantic, as the idealist, uh, was actually uh, ahead of his time in that respect. Yeah, exactly. And you were writing a lot in the book about um, these early nomadic tribes or groups and how they uh, were very intelligent and that we weren't the only ones, I guess, that we are one of many that we came from, that there were five other homo X, um, you know, and that there were Neanderthals and that there were before us so many others. Mm -hmm. And you talk about, well, why did they kind of disappear? Why didn't they last? What made humans, as we are now, the ones that stayed and actually in some way conquered the planet, although I don't agree with that way of thinking of things. But I wonder whether you could take us through some of the ideas and some of the science that you discovered and uncovered about how humans evolved and what what made them really interesting and special. Sure. So this is obviously one of the great questions about our history, right? Um, why did we populate the whole globe and why did the Neanderthals do it, right? Why is the president of the United States uh, a human being and not a chimpanzee? Even though some people might think he's a chimpanzee, but he's not. Um, I mean, that's really the question. What makes us so special? And the answer that we've tell, told ourselves for a long time is that we're just really smart, right? That it must be our great brains and that, yeah, we're, we're capable of, uh, yeah, uh, great intelligence or something like that. Um, Turns out that actually the evidence for that is really weak. So if you do intelligence tests and you let a human toddler of around two years old compete with a pig or a bonobo, then usually the pig or the bonobo wins, right? And people should keep the, that in mind when they eat bacon, uh, but that's another book. But the point here is that, no, we're not that special. Individually, people are not that smart. Actually, we get most of our knowledge from other people, Right. We learn most of the things we know from other people. Now, are we then so uh, mean or are we so violent or are we so strong? No, probably probably neither. If you compare us to, uh, well, again, for example, chimpanzees, I, I wouldn't want to do a boxing match with, uh, with a chimpanzee, you know, it would probably totally destroy me. So um, it's not that we're so smart. It's not that we're so strong. That What makes us special, right? Why did we uh, populate the whole globe? And why are the Neanderthals gone? What biologists and evolutionary anthropologists now believe is that our true secret superpower is in fact our friendliness. Is that we are able to cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. And you see this in the design of our bodies, actually. So 
One really striking thing that I came across during my research is that human beings are, apart from some parrots uh, who also have this ability, uh, we're the only species among primates and among mammals that actually have the ability to blush. Which is really striking, right? How could it ever have been an evolutionary advantage to us to involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else, right? And the answer that scientists now give is blushing helps to establish trust because then you know that someone takes your ideas and your opinions seriously, right? Shame is this incredibly powerful force in human societies. Now, another thing that's really special for, uh, to us is, uh, well, you see this if you look into our eyes. Um, we are the only primate, and there are 200 primates in total. We are the only primate that have white around our eyes, uh, which means that you can follow our gazes. You know, it's really easy to see what people are, are looking at and which, in which direction they're looking. All the other primates, all of them, you know, the chimpanzees, the bonobo, the orangutans, you name it, they have dark around their eyes. So it's much more difficult to see if they're actually looking at you, which also obviously makes it more difficult to establish trust. You know, they're a bit like poker players wearing shades or, you know, mafia members who wearing wearing shades. Um, so this is, uh, this. these are sort of two very fascinating things. They're sort of our cooperative eyes and this blushing that helps us to cooperate. Now, there's now also a name for this whole theory in biology. Um, biologists call it self-domestication theory. And the idea here is that we've basically done to ourselves what we also did later to some animals, right? So we know that cows and goats and sheep, they've been domesticated, right? They've been selected for tameness and for friendliness. And we know that there's a whole list of things that happen here. Scientists talk about um, domestication syndrome. So this is a list of traits that domesticated species have, uh, you know, thinner bones, smaller brains. And in general, domesticated species just look more childish uh, pedomorphic, right? Just they—they they look quite childlike. And then you look at the bodies of of human beings, and you compare them uh, from fifty thousand years ago, forty, thirty, twenty, ten thousand years ago, and you see exactly the same process. You see this process of domestications: our brains getting smaller, our bones getting thinner, and we look more childlike compared to our ancestors. And the thing is, this is our true superpower because this has helped us to cooperate on a scale that other species just can't. Yeah, it's really amazing. And I love the term survival of the friendliest. Um, yeah. And I love the anecdote that you got from Charles Darwin about the fact that he was writing to people he knew from different countries to check whether they also blushed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, he was one of the first scientists to notice this, right? That blushing is really a peculiar human thing. And... Um, yeah, you really have to account for that. If you have a much uh, darker view of, of evolution or of human nature, right, that supposedly there was this war of all against all and that it's really all about competition, then how can you account for this fact, right, that we, that we are the only primate, the only mammal who actually have the ability to blush? Now, obviously, there are some of us who rarely blush, right? Uh, I mean, the Donald Trumps of this world, they, they don't, I don't see them red, it's more orange probably. But, I mean, that's a, that's a whole different chapter of the book, obviously, because we also know that power corrupts, right? And, and people who are on the influence of the drug that we call power, they sort of become plucked out of society, right? We know that they, their empathy doesn't really work anymore. They sort of lose the ability to, uh, 
to uh, blush. And um, this is something that nomadic hunter-gatherers already knew, you know, 10,000s of years ago. They knew that those in power had to be controlled, basically, by the group. And they used uh, shame here. They used group pressure. Uh, and therefore, if you wanted to survive in a nomadic, nomadic hunter-gatherer society, and we know this from ethnographic field reports, um, what you had to do is you had to be humble. Humble was really a prerequisite for surviving. Because otherwise, people didn't like you and you wouldn't have enough friends. And friends was the most important thing if you wanted to survive, right? You couldn't survive with possessions or, you know, with material stuff because, I mean, you would be moving around all the time. But what you sort of, the, the kind of riches that you could build up, sort of the treasures in life that you could have is friends. So people were not collecting uh, stuff. They were collecting friendships because that was sort of the most important thing that helped them to survive. And here, this, this humbleness was, was incredibly important. Yeah, the fact that they would enforce humility was really interesting when I was reading those examples you were giving. One of the things that you raise on a related note is the way that evolution has been talked about in these terms of uh, competition and, you know, that it was very much all about survival in, in a kind of negative sense. And you cite some of the more famous uh, examples of evolution and probably, as you say, some of the more depressing ones, the, the depressing reads. Richard Dawkins is very well known for his book, mm -hmm. The Selfish Gene, and you do bring that up as something that had coloured your view of evolution before you really got looking further into it. And I know that you're not the only one. So I wonder if you could talk to us about how you, going on this research process, um, mm -hmm changed or or were you pleasantly surprised that there was more to evolution than I guess the normative discussions and narratives that we have around evolution currently yeah exactly you know I uh, was brought up in a Christian household so I went to a Christian school which meant that when we got to the chapter about evolution that the teacher would say well that's not uh, that's not true we've got <laughs> you don't have to believe that etc so i think i was around 18 or 19 years old that i sort of f first delved into uh, the theory of evolution and i remember feeling quite depressed after i really understood it right this whole view of life which meant that 99% of all species are already extinct and this yeah this whole picture of animals dying all the time and then uh, certain uh, species or, or animals are being selected so that they can actually pass in their genes to the next generation i don't know it seemed like a quite depressing picture to me yeah oh and obviously there's the the very famous book from 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 richard dawkins which is i mean i must uh, must say that it's really a masterpiece right it's a masterpiece about the role that genes play in evolution but it also had a quite dark message there's one part in the book or at least in the earlier versions of the book where he says you know, let's just teach altruism and generosity to our kids because they're born selfish, right? So again, quite depressing. Um, so it was also really fascinating for me to, to find out that actually in the last 10 to 15 years, biologists and evolutionary anthropologists have moved in a very, very different direction. It was pretty much the opposite direction, you know, as I talked about. They, they, uh, they describe our evolution as a process of survival of the friendliest. So yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we're alone in this universe, right? And maybe we are at the end of a very, very long history of evolution, right? It, this is just one thing to keep in mind, is that human beings have only just arrived on the scene, right? 
I, I sort of make this comparison in the book where, where I look at the history of life, right? Let me just look it up here. If you look at the history of life on Earth, like say the past 4,000 million years, and you represent it as one full calendar year, then, well, on January 1, obviously you have the first life on Earth. But then on December the 25th, the dinosaurs go extinct. And actually on December the 30, uh, 31st, so the last day of the year, on 11, at 11 p.m., only then the first humans appear. And then two minutes before midnight, two minutes before midnight, we invent agriculture. And then like in the last minute, we have everything that we call history, right? The story of the pyramids and the castles and the, the spaceships, etc. So we've, we are just such a small blip in the whole history of, of life on, the, on this earth. But we have sort of managed to, yeah, to populate the whole globe. And we've actually been the first species to visit the moon, etc. So there is something special about us. And what makes it special is really this ability to cooperate and to work together. That's so true. And, and I was thinking about that timeline while you were talking about how that relates back into the subject that you cover in a lot of depth, which is about war and violence and conflict mm -hmm. and where that really came about in the timeline of, of the world's history. Um, and it was interesting, and it, it has come up once before in a chat I had about uh, feminism for men. And we were talking about patriarchy and, you know, how do you find where this all came from and what was the point where things really started to descend? And you bring up a, a, a time, a point in time, which is really agriculture and and this point where humans started to go from being those hunter-gatherer nomads to settling in one spot and starting to build a set of possessions. Mm. Um, I wonder if you could share with us that, that really important point in time and what kind of things pushed you to realise or uncover when you were doing the research around um, how humans have evolved uh, in their behaviours. And, I mean, it all goes back to this book, which is about human nature and whether mm -hmm. we are inherently selfish, inherently violent, inherently sexist, inherently racist. Could you talk yeah. a, bit, a little bit about that? Well, it's really interesting, actually, is that, again, if you look at these nomadic and together societies, they're quite egalitarian. You could almost describe them as proto-feminist as well, right? There's, there's this striking equality between the sexes. Now, once these hunter-gatherers settle down, and we've got some case studies here. So, for example, there's a tribe in the Kalahari Desert, the Kung or the Juansi, uh, that, you know, there, there are cases where some, some of them settle down. And then you suddenly see this increase in, in gender inequality and also, for example, in, in domestic abuse. Um, it's 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 really interesting phenomenon. Um, so yeah, w when we settle down, you get the uh, and you get the invention of private property, and uh, then you get hierarchy, and you get distinctions between classes as well. And uh, then also, I think that the the whole theory that people are fundamentally selfish uh, becomes more popular, because if you think about it, who benefits from a cynical view of human nature? Well. It's those in power, obviously, because if we can trust each other, then we need them, right? Then you need powerful people to control the rest of us so that we make sure, right, we don't kill each other. Um, if you actually believe that most people are pretty decent, then that means that we can actually move to a very different kind of society, 
a much more egalitarian kind of society. So throughout the history of civilization, you know, the past 10,000 years, rulers have always been very wary of a more hopeful view of human nature because they know that it dangers, endangers their position, right? They need a cynical view of human nature to legitimize their authority. And I guess that's the dynamic you see playing out again and again ever since that, that moment. You are listening to my interview with historian Rutger Bregman, who is based in the Netherlands, and he is talking with me about his book, Humankind, A Hopeful History, which is out through Bloomsbury. Uh, It's just been released in the UK and here, and I believe um, in the last day released in America. And uh, I spoke with Rutger, um, this was a pre-record um, that uh, I did from home and uh, as did Rutger, although um, the sound quality is quite good, so I'm very pleased with that, that it uh, may not sound like it was um, from home, but uh, the magic of the internet. I hope you're enjoying this interview. Um, I'm going to play the second part of this interview, which is uh, a little over 20 minutes, and uh, we do go into more depth about um, humankind, looking at some of these questions um, that the sceptics among us might bring up um, as to why Rutger could be wrong and what his rebuttals of those um, arguments are and what evidence he brings to bear uh, about that. And we'll also touch on the um, the issue or the, the kind of headline-making story uh, from Rutger's book called um, – the chapter called The Real Lord of the Flies, which uh, I've posted the excerpt from The Guardian up on the Twitter um, for Uncommon Sense. If you want to read that, you can see the full story there, but we will also touch on that in the second part. I hope you uh, can stick with me. And, of course, if you miss any part of this uh, long-form chat, it will be up on the podcast a bit later on today. Yeah, and uh, you list some of those thinkers uh, across Western history that have really subscribed to the theory or the idea that humans are innately selfish, mm-hmm. uh, including thinkers like Thucydides, Augustine, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Luther, Calvin, Burke, Bentham, Nietzsche, Freud, and America's founding fathers. And you bring up the example of veneer theory, which is uh, one of those really interesting theories. And as you say, and you've already referenced, it comes up a lot when we see disasters, um, Mm -hmm. natural disasters. In terms of that thought exercise that the um, academic that you spoke with had, I really enjoyed that about the planet A and planet B. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether you could take us through it because when I was reading it and I didn't know what the answer was going to be, I was a little bit surprised at my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Could you share with us that anecdote, that thought experiment? Yeah, sure, sure. So this is a thought experiment from Tom Postmas. He's a professor of social psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And I had just written a piece about how people respond to disasters. And he told me that he's been asking his students the same question, you know, for years and years. And so the the thought exercise goes something like this. Uh, Imagine an airplane makes an emergency landing and breaks into three parts. As the cabin fills with smoke, everybody in sight realizes we've got to get out of here. What happens? Now, on planet A, the passengers turn to their neighbors to ask if they're okay. Those needing assistance are helped out of the plane first. People are willing to give their lives, even for perfect strangers. On planet B, everyone's left to fend for themselves. Panic breaks out. There's lots of pushing and shoving. 
children, the elderly, and people with disability get trampled underfoot. The question, which planet do we live on? Now, the interesting thing is that every time Postmus asked this question, around 97% of his students said that we live on planet B, right? The selfish planet, where it's everyone for himself. Um, and he has also asked this to, you know, third-year students or master students or, you know, professional emergency responders. And again and again, the majority of people think that we live on the selfish planet. But the reality is the opposite, right? As I, as I said earlier, we've got now 700 case studies of sociologists actually studying what happens after an emergency, whether it's, uh, you know, an airplane that crashes or um, 9-11, for example. This is a really fascinating example uh, uh, as well, um, that people just uh, respond with so much cooperation. We've got eyewitness accounts of people who are going down the stairs of the burning Twin Towers on, on 9-11, and they're literally saying to each other, no, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first, right? In the staircase. It's just unimaginable. But that's, that's, that's what happens time and again. So the, here you have this fact from, from science that, well, there are a few facts that we have more evidence for, but that is so blithely ignored, right? We really ignore that all the time. Yeah. Well, I was interested when I was reading it because I picked planet A and I wondered whether I'd been primed to pick that response uh, because of Australia's bushfires over the summer huh. um, because it was just so recent in my memory uh-huh. and the experience was so visceral that I just instantly picked A and, and it reminded me of, you know, the global outpouring that we saw of people donating money and, mm-hmm. you know, Australians at points actually being so helpful that they were almost unhelpful yeah. um, and that politicians had to tell Australians, actually, please don't keep giving us things. We need your money rather than your goods or, huh, you know, huh. there were so many examples of, of yeah. everyone pulling together that I actually struggled to find um, or think of an example where there was that example of a selfish individualistic human being that was kind of taking advantage of the situation yeah well that's good to hear and this is probably i mean it's a reason for hope because we are entering an era of climate disaster after climate disaster right so Mm. just imagine that we would live in a world where people would respond by looting and plundering and, and being violent every time there's an earthquake or a tsunami or 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 a bushfire or something like that i mean that would be hell right luckily we live in a very different kind of world yeah, and it is really convincing, I've got to say, your arguments. And you do go through some of the areas where people might be a little bit sceptical. And one of those that you really single out, which is probably one of the most obvious for anyone listening, which is the Holocaust. And you talk about Auschwitz and people questioning, well, can anyone or everyone be a Nazi if they're in the right circumstances? Like mm-hmm. what makes someone bad or evil and I think a lot of people try to use labels like they're a monster they're evil you know it's a shocking uncommon example of humanity and you do look at this darker side and you find reasons why it could have happened one of which was around um, when you're looking at German soldiers Mm -hmm. this discussion of it wasn't about ideology necessarily it was about something else uh, a bond could you share with us those thoughts because I think they are important to our understanding of this yes so this is obviously the big question that hangs over this whole book right how can you ever write a book about human kindness and cooperation uh, if we are also the cruelest species on the planet because that's 
I mean, that's obviously true. We are, on the one hand, the friendliest species on the planet, capable of cooperating on this huge scale, but we are also doing things that are just... You don't see them in the animal kingdom, you know, with other animals, like exterminating whole groups of other people, you know, I've never heard of a penguin or, I don't know, a bird who does, does that kind of things. It's like these are singularly human crimes. Um, so how do we explain that? Uh, it's the irony of writing a book like this, that you have to go on for hundreds of pages about sort of all the dark chapters in, in human history. Now, after the Second World War ended, uh, there was a whole new generation of social psychologists who was obsessed with this question, right? How do we explain all these crimes? Is there a Nazi in each and every one of us? And there were all these really famous experiments being done by uh, social psychologists like Stanley Milgram, who did these famous shock experiments that most people have heard about, where just yeah, normal subjects were apparently willing to shock an innocent stranger who was sh sitting in another room, like give very dangerous electric shocks. Um, and you had the Stanford Prison Experiment by Philip Zimbardo, who, um, yeah, sort of in just a couple of days managed to turn healthy, nice, decent students uh, into sadistic monsters. And again and again, the message of these researchers was that, uh, yeah, again, another version, I think, of veneer theory, that there's a Nazi below the surface in each and every one of us. Now, I'm quite skeptical of that. In the book, I go over all these experiments and I try to show that actually they've often been misreported. And in the case of, of the Stanford Prison Experiment, well, that's actually a hoax, right? We now know that Simbardo specifically instructed his students to be as sadistic as possible because he said, you know, I need these results so that I can go to the press and, uh, and then basically say how horrible prisons are and you've got to help me with this. Um, and so I try to find a different kind of explanations because i mean then the mystery only becomes bigger right if it's not if if we're not sort of evil deep down or cruel deep down uh then how can you explain all the atrocities of the second world war and all the other wars and ethnic cleansings and genocides etc etc so i mean i cannot obviously pretend to give a full answer to to this question i mean libraries full of books have, have to be written about that and they have been written about that mm. um but i do focus on some things that i think are interesting so in the first place i think there's a connection between our capacity for friendliness and our groupish behavior and our tribal behavior so many of of our worst crimes are committed not in the name of sadism but in the name of friendship and of loyalty and because we succumb to peer pressure, uh, right? So in, indeed, I, in the, I've got one chapter in the book about the question, why the German soldiers kept fighting in 1944 and 1945 when it was clear they were going to lose the war, right? But still, they kept going on. And actually, the German military is probably one of the most effective fighting forces in world history, right? On average, they uh, were 50% more effective in terms of casualties, right, that they inflicted on the enemy than Allied soldiers. So why did they keep on fighting? Even in 1945, you know, the last months of the war, they were still fanatics. Uh, why did this happen? At first, uh, the Allied psychologists thought that they must have been totally brainwashed, right? That that must be the explanation. But then they started interviewing prisoners of war, and they kept hearing the same answer, you know, the same reply when, when uh, the question was asked, why, why were you still fighting? And the answer was, Kameradschaft, you know, uh, comradeship, friendship, that most of these soldiers were not so much fighting for their great ideology, even though, I mean, that did play a role, but the much, much 
bigger role was played in 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 this respect by um yeah by basically fighting for your friends and not wanting to let your friends down now i'm not saying that ideology is unimportant i'm just saying that for the average foot soldier comradeship was much more important and that if you want to look at the role of ideology sort of the idea that you know people were really creating a sort of trying to create a better world i think that's more important if you look at the nazi leadership and also if you look at elite troops like the ss etc etc so um uh, i think the the thing that strikes out here again and again is that so much evil is done in the name of good and this is a terrifying very uncomfortable fact about our species right and it also makes you question your own motivations right because mm. yeah so often we do these horrible things and uh, and we have our th- these this this kind of alibi, alibi where we say well actually i'm trying to improve the world or i'm doing this for my friends or you know i want to be loyal exactly the ordinary as you say the ordinary people have those those motivations often but you mm-hmm. do say that their leaders are a very different story and you highlight war criminals like adolf hitler and joseph goebbels as examples of paranoid narcissists mm-hmm. and i was really interested in the fact that you highlight a term acquired sociopathy mm-hmm. and you say that essentially these people who rise to positions of power a lot of them, a common theme can be that they display certain tendencies that literally someone with brain damage would actually have and that these powerful elites who think of themselves as a certain way also apply their beliefs to others and think that everyone else will see the world in the same way. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so we know from, again, a huge amount of... psychological studies that power corrupts you know power is this really dangerous drug Uh, if you put powerful people in brain scans then you'll see that certain parts of their brain that are involved with empathy for example they don't really work that well anymore it's it's a little bit as if powerful people have become unplugged right from the rest of society that they're not connected to the wi-fi anymore uh, and they're just just on their own what makes makes them capable of things that other people just can't right for example, if you don't feel shame anymore, then you can say crazy things and do crazy things that other people would just die, right? When they say or do similar things. Um, we talked earlier about this phenomenon among nomadic and gatherers, you know, the, the survival of the friendliest phenomenon and that humbleness was really a prerequisite to survive. Now, this really started to change once we settled down. Then we entered an era that I would describe as the survival of the shameless era. And we still see this today, actually. It's a very strange thing that actually 4 to 8% of CEOs have sociopathic tendencies, while only 1% of the population has sociopathic tendencies. So they're overrepresented. If you look at many political leaders, they really seem narcissists as well. You know, whether you talk about a Boris Johnson or Bolsonaro in Brazil or Trump in the US, I mean, they their true superpower is sort of uh, being immune to shame, right? They can just do and say things, yeah, that that other people just can't. And we've created a kind of society, a kind of competitive society, where this actually helps them. You know, this actually helps them to gain power. Now, imagine Trump in prehistory. You know, among nomadic hunter-gatherers, he wouldn't have survived for long because nobody would have liked him, and he would have died alone. Right? You really need your friends. But now he's become the most powerful man in the whole world. 
which is really an indictment, I think, of, yeah, basically our current democratic system, that you have this survival of the shameless process going on. And that's, I think, why we really need to rethink how we're doing democracy right now, because democracy should be all about keeping those in power in check, right? And to make sure that power is distributed and to make sure that, yeah, people don't become shameless. And yeah, our democracy doesn't have a great track record at that point. Mm. And it seems like that's why a lot of the leaders who break this mould, like Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, mm-hmm. is often admired by a number of people because she does display the humility of someone who is not a sociopath like yeah, <laughs> some yeah, yeah. other leaders yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, and that is absolutely wonderful to see, obviously. I think it's really, humbleness is really prerequisite for effective political leadership, right? And it, but it's really hard to stay that way. <laughs> I mean, uh, I must, I, I experience it often in my life as well, right? If you get, if you get compliments for, I don't know, for, for this or that book, uh, you have to keep reminding yourself that, you know, you're not that special. You're just relying on the research of so many others, right? And you were really privileged to be able to write this book and to connect all the dots, et cetera, et cetera. But you really sort of have to fight your own tendencies in there because, this is a story as old as humanity. You know, power is a dangerous drug. It corrupts you. So be wary of it. Yeah, it's a really important lesson, I definitely think. Just to finish out our chat, I wanted to talk about the story that really has been the headline of this book. It's the real Lord of the Flies, the story that you've uncovered that does involve an Australian, which was interesting, and some wonderful Tongans. And it was really exciting to see uh, on Twitter when you were talking about the fact that you've um, now going to be turning it into a movie. Yeah, yeah. No, it's really the craziest experience of my life so far. You know, it was actually, I think, a couple of weeks after we met in 2017 that I managed to track down the captain who had rescued these six kids who had lived for 50 months on the island of Ata, uh, which is uh, to the south of uh, Tonga. And I spoke to him, and he also put me in contact with one of the original Lord of the Flies kids, uh, a man named Mano. And together, they told me the story of what had really happened. And it turned out that it was this really happy story of friendship and cooperation and resilience, right? And actually, Peter and Mano were still friends, right? They are still friends up until this day, you know? They, they're they soulmates, basically. So, yeah, three years ago, I, I, I wrote this book, obviously. I wrote the chapter, and then we already published it in Dutch um, in September last year. Uh, and, you know, people like the story, but it didn't do that much because Lord of the Flies is not that well-known, I think, in the Netherlands. But then three weeks ago, we published in the, it in The Guardian, you know, an excerpt from the book. And just, it went totally, totally viral. Like eight million people read it. <laughs> and, and suddenly there were dozens of film companies around the globe who wanted to buy the rights to the story. A whole of Hollywood wanted it. But I was like, but, you know, it's not my story, obviously. I mean, people in Tonga have been telling it to, to each other for generations, so I did. I guess I did play a role in sort of making it well known around the world. But I really felt like I had to get into contact with uh, the survivors and with Peter Warner, the captain, who I knew was was still alive. And so last week we had this extraordinary moment. It was it was really, uh, I must say, one of the highlights of my career so far, where we had a Zoom call across four different time zones with four of the original Lord of the Flies kids. Two others have sadly passed away, uh, and Peter Warner, the captain. 
And we made a collective decision about which film company to go with. So in the end, we chose a new Regency who also made uh, The Revenant and uh, 12 Years a Slave. Um, so yeah, now there's going to be a huge, big Hollywood production about the real Lord of the Flies. And uh, I still can't quite believe it, I must, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing. And it's also more amazing to me that it was not prominent that this story that really is just amazing like 15 months on an island and they're Mm -hmm. in their kind of adolescent years and you know are cooperating so well and surviving and someone breaks their leg and they set the leg Mm -hmm. and you know keep a fire going for a year like there's so many things that people that age probably would not have ever had to have as a challenge such a a mental challenge and physical challenge And, um, yeah, I wondered why it hadn't been so prominent beyond Tonga. Well, there are a couple of reasons here, probably. I mean, in the first place, these were not white kids. And we know how Hollywood is, or at least has been for a long time. If you're not white, then they're not interested anymore. Um, The other reason is probably that if this would be a fictional story, people would say, oh, this is so unrealistic, right? This is so romantic. This is not how people would behave, right? It's, uh, It's almost too good to be true. But there you go, it actually happened. Then when you ask the question, how did they manage to survive? I think you can sort of say two things. So obviously, in my book, I focus on human nature, right? I've written a book about human nature, which is about, well, in the first place, how people pull together in times of crisis. So in that respect, it shouldn't be that surprising that these kids did that as well. But that on the other hand, you also have to acknowledge that there's something specific to Tongan culture, right? They have many skills that other kids from other parts of the globe just don't have when they're 15 years old. You know, they could, they're mm-hmm. really good at swimming and they're really good at fishing and they, they could farm, you know, they could tend to the garden. So when there will be a movie, I think it's really important that they'll go really deep in Tongo culture to explain how these kids managed to survive and also how their spirituality helped them. Um, I've talked to some of them and that, that, that's been really important to them as well. So I think it's sort of a combination between human nature and human, uh, human culture. In my book, I obviously focus more on human nature because, I mean, it's basically the same with the British and the Germans who during the Second World War, they said, felt they were so special. Well, in fact, human nature was going on, right? People pulled together in times of crisis. But in this story, I think two things are going on at the same time. Yeah. And one of the things I just wanted to end on is the fact that you do reference to the fact that this is a radical book Mm. and people might not think that they go, oh, how could it be radical? But Mm. you do bring out what is essentially what I notice as well, having seen how power operates. It's Mm. the fact that, as you say, to stand up for human goodness is to take a stand against the powers that be and for the powerful, a hopeful view of human nature is downright threatening subversive, seditious. It implies that we're not selfish beasts that need to be reined in, restrained and regulated. And it also implies that we need a different kind of leadership. And I just felt that was such a a really important insight when I read that. And it did go down to just how subversive and radical something like what you've put forward with all the evidence that you've amassed is. Yeah, yeah. Believing in the good of humanity is a revolutionary act. It's a, it's an act of hope. It's an act that, well, it impels you to act. It means that you have to get out of bed in the morning and do something to try and change the world. Uh, it's the opposite of cynicism. I mean, I always think that cynicism is, is basically another word for laziness. Because if people are really so selfish, then what's the point anyway? Right? What's the point of, mm. of activism, of trying to improve the world? You know, then, then in the end, it's not going to work out. 
Now, if you turn it around and if you believe that most people are pretty decent, then that gives you big responsibility as well to do something. And yes, those in power are not going to like you because it really threatens their position. It implies that we can move to a very different kind of society, a much more egalitarian society with totally different kind of schools where kids can follow their intrinsic motivation, very different kind of companies where you don't have as much management anymore and much more democracy on the work floor, very different kind of prisons where you actually treat inmates with humanity instead of you know, just focusing on vengeance. You have a very different kind of democracy where it's not about you know, voting every three or four years, but it's actually about engaging and participating uh, also on a local level uh, and being a politician every now and then yourself. I mean, everything changes once you update your view of human nature. And I think the time has really come uh, to do that. If you want to be a realist these days, you, um, you need to move to a much more hopeful view of who we really are. Yeah, especially with climate change being mm. such an important issue that we need to, to join together on. Yeah. Uh, Rutger, thank you so much for a really important work. I know you're going to stay humble now that you've written a whole <laughs> book about how important it is. <laughs> I'll try. Thanks for having me, Amy. Until next time. Yes, exactly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I'm so pleased now to welcome back to the show Dr. Emma Shortis. Um, we've brought her back for a really important chat. Um, I feel like it's particularly urgent and important because of um, the fact that we've seen escalating protests over the weekend um, in America and some pretty shocking things that have been caught on camera um, in this digital age where everyone has a recording device, essentially. Um, A lot of uh, things have really come to the surface and been exposed. And no doubt, these are behaviours that have existed in the past, but we're seeing them really um, coming to the fore now and uh, really in a very unashamed way and particularly looking at the way that uh, police are handling some of these protests and um, their behaviours and also the National Guard, which has been brought in in a number of states. So we're going to be talking about what started these protests um, what characterises them at the moment and some of the historical background surrounding it and some of the other related US politics news. So I welcome now via Skype Dr Emma Shortis from the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT. Hi there, Emma. Good morning, Amy. How are you going? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Yeah, good. It's, it's been a pretty extraordinary week for watchers of US politics, I think. I think, yeah, that would be probably an understatement in these really extreme times. Um, I I was looking, following it on Twitter, um, and there's just video after video after video of uh, footage from so many different cities across America of protests, some of which, and, and many of which have been peaceful, although there's a lot of anger 
um, that underlies them. And then there are other examples where they've become violent or there's been looting or uh, graffiti or in some cases police stations going up in flames. Um, And then we've seen a real crackdown, a, a pushback from police, from the National Guard and also from President Trump himself. So I I wanted to ask you, um, for those who maybe didn't catch the start of this story and what um, has created this real upheaval in America, um, I'm sure many people are aware of it now, but um, looking back, we that takes us back to actually May 25th um, with the killing, police killing of George Floyd, an African-American man. Could you talk us through how this all came about? That's right. So it, it was, I think, this has been, as you said, this has been coming for a really long time, but the kind of, I guess, the tipping point, the specific incident that has kicked off this wave of protests that, that is rocking basically the entire United States was the murder by, of, a, of an African-American man, George Floyd, as you said, in, in Minneapolis by police officers. So he was arrested on suspicion of, I think it was fraud, a very minor crime of having a fraudulent $20 bill um, in a store. And the police officer, one of the police officers who arrested him held him down by pinning his knee um, to the man's neck for nearly eight minutes. And as as George Floyd was begging for help and telling the police officer that he couldn't breathe, um, they ignored him. He kept his knee on his neck and, and he died. And there has since been an independent autopsy and coroner's report, which has um, said that he he was killed by this police officer. He died by asphyxiation, so he was murdered. That police officer has since been charged with murder, but it took a week for that to happen. And so the outrage in the face of this murder, which was filmed by a 17-year-old black girl on her phone, um, which is, must have just been so incredibly tom- traumatic for that young woman, um, has since gone viral. And, and I think kind of it was it was the final tipping point for a number of people after a wave of these incidents. So, you know, just a couple of days before, we saw a, a video of a white woman um, calling the police on an African American man who had very kindly asked her to put her dog back on her leash in Central Park in in New York because she was letting her dog off leash in a place where she shouldn't be, and she called the police um, basically hysterical and screaming that an African American man was threatening her, and it was very clear that she was you know weaponizing her privilege. Basically, she knew what she was doing. She knew that she was potentially putting a death sentence on this black man. So we saw that, and we've seen a number of other police murders in the in the last few weeks of a man called Ahmed Aubrey in, in Georgia who was shot in the back by not police in, in this case but two white men who accused him of robbery so there have been a wave of these incidents in in recent weeks but also you know as as anybody who watches the United States would know this these kind of incidents have a long history and police have a long history of getting away with this kind of treatment of not being charged of having no consequences and I think the the righteous anger with with that behavior with those patterns with that systemic racism has combined with the effect of a global pandemic that is disproportionately affecting minority communities in the United States with outrage uh, at Trump and his policies and and again that that much longer history of of what I think is becoming increasingly clear is a completely broken system in the United States. Yeah, and uh, it's certainly disturbing. And you mentioned there the fact that uh, that police officer who was being filmed with his knee right um, into George Floyd's neck, 
Um, he was arrested, but as you say, only uh, much, much later. And one of the outraged moments of this period of about a week uh, was the fact that on, um, I think it was May 29, a CNN reporter, Omar Jimenez, was arrested on camera. Uh, it was very obvious that he was a journalist. Um, he was arrested by police on camera for no apparent reason. Um, he was a, a person of colour and um, it really did get people uh, and, and really make them angry because at that stage, the policeman who had uh, caused the death of George Floyd had not yet been uh, arrested and yet a journalist just doing their job, um, a person of colour, had been arrested in a blatant um, kind of challenge to free press. Um, What are your thoughts on how this has escalated and how journalists um, in particular, of course, not just um, journalists, though, protesters as well, but it's been very, um, very, very visceral, really, to see the types of injuries that journalists have sustained during these protests, covering them as part of their job. How do you characterise the treatment of the press at the moment on the ground uh, during these protests? Look, I, I think you're right, Amy, to, to point it to that particular incident of the of this black CNN reporter being arrested kind of quite early on in this um, week of protests. That was particularly striking, I think, because he had a white colleague also working for CNN who just moments before had been approached by the police and been told he was fine. And this all mm. kind of unfolded live on air because as the black reporter was being arrested, his camera crew were still filming. So CNN were kind of live streaming this as it happened and discussing the fact that their black colleague had been arrested, but their white colleague had not. So that you could kind of watch in real time, the journalists kind of realizing how this plays out for black people in America all the time because, you know, there's the conversation on Twitter about how this is extraordinary because this black reporter is, you know, he's being so calm and he's being so reasonable to these police officers who are still arresting him. And, of course, then, um, you know, African-American people are turning around and saying, of course he is, he's a black man in America, he knows that he cannot risk, um, you know, further enraging these white police officers. Since then, I think things have changed even a little bit more because, as you say, there have been a wave of attacks against reporters covering these protests in the United States. We've seen footage after footage of press people, you know, cameramen, but clearly showing their their press credentials to police who were then dismissing them on camera, injuring them. I saw a reporter had actually lost her her left eye um, a couple of days ago because she'd been hit with a rubber bullet by by police to which she had clearly identified herself. Look, there there is a history of, of the press being attacked in protests such as this going back all the way to 1968. I think it's different this time because of the brazenness of it. You know, police are doing this on camera knowing that they, they're being filmed and that I, it's very clear in my mind that that is at least partly the result of having a president in the White House who has been attacking the press for several years. He's been calling them fake news. He's been, you know, basically... Um, I think egging on violence. If you if you go back to the 2016 campaign, you might remember the kind of press pens at some of Donald Trump's big rallies, where the where reporters are kind of fenced in in the middle of a big rally, and and Trump's pointing at them and chanting fake news, and getting the whole crowd to turn around and and chant that as well. And and there were incidences of Trump supporters attacking the press. So so this I think unfortunately these incidents of of 
press and media being attacked by police is is not really surprising. I think it's shocking for a lot of people who who see the United States as a kind of beacon of freedom. You know, the, the First Amendment and the freedom of the press is a, is a central pillar of, of the American political system. So it is shocking in that sense. But I think it's also not surprising given, you know, Trump's rhetoric that I've been discussing and also the militarization of a police force, of, of police forces across the country that have been allowed to act with impunity for, for decades, but have been, you know, I think further unleashed by Trump being in the White House. Yeah, and there have been some just shocking examples. As you've said, that um, the woman who lost her eye, she literally has no vision now in one eye. I mean, this is crazy to think that a person going about their business, doing their job, um, has become collateral damage and it's not a one-off. It's actually a trend. Um, And we've seen journalists from Deutsche Wells, from LA Times, Washington Post, um, there's so many examples of journalists who've been affected, uh, Wall Street Journal. um, and, And it is really shocking because I think a lot of people would perhaps make the incorrect incorrect assumption that this kind of thing might happen in the Middle East, um, in a war zone, but it shouldn't be happening uh, in America on the streets um, during a protest. Uh, And that's one of the things that is a bit of a, I guess, a shock to the system. There was some video that showed uh, New York police over the weekend engaging in things like in Brooklyn, for example, there's a video where um, protesters were kind of around a a police car and the car actually moved, drove forward into the crowd, um, didn't, I don't think, harm anyone um, very seriously. But there's this kind of, as you say, brazen um, violence and it's ironic and has been pointed out the irony that these protests are protesting against police violence and yet they're being met with unprecedented police violence. Um, How do you perceive this? And also um, in terms of Trump, and you've mentioned that he has been egging people on and um, certainly not uh, provided the leadership that anyone probably wouldn't have expected anyway, but um, from the president one would expect in a time of crisis like this that uh, if it were any other situation, a president would step up and call for unity and actually take action. Um, How has he contributed to this situation at the moment right now, like as in in the past few days? What have his actions been uh, in response to these protests? Yeah, well, as you say, I think it's interesting to see that there are frequent calls, you know, for some kind of leadership from the president. And it's sometimes kind of astounding for me to to see that happen when, you know, we know what Trump is like. We know that he is not going to be able to calm this situation, I suppose, in the way that you would hope maybe previous American presidents um, might have done. Um, He he has done a few things, um, I think, that are entirely in character. Just today, actually, you know, as I was trying to listen to your show, I was getting messages about how Trump had done a walk from from the White House to a church which is is nearby called St. John's, which is a a kind of famous church in American history because many presidents go there to pray. You know, Abraham Lincoln went there to to pray um, when he was president. And he, so he walked from the White House to this chapel and was, the, the police that were going with him, cleared peaceful protesters with um, tear gas and rubber bullets, you know, and they, this protest was was entirely peaceful. Um, I saw, I actually saw some, some tweets from Australian journalists saying that they had been kind of manhandled out of the way by White House staffers who were, who were very shocked. 
Now, Trump, I think, has done this as a, a kind of show of strength because um, a couple of days ago there were news reports that he and um, Melania and his son had been rushed to a bunker in the White House. So he was being criticised for that, for you know, for, for hiding from his own citizens. So this is a kind of typical Trumpian, Trumpian reaction to that to show strength. Um, he then stood in front of the church kind of brandishing a Bible, um, talking about rioters and looters. Um, he's focusing on anti-fascist groups as, as the kind of outside perpetrators of these protests, which of course is absolutely um, not true. So he is doing really nothing but in, inflaming the situation. He's also threatening to to call in the military um, to quell protesters. I know that there are he has advisors in the Department of Defence who are basically gagging, I think, to, to call in the military and to suppress these protests. And and unfortunately, you know, I can I'm, I'm not as you know, and you know, I'm not all that always that keen to make predictions. But there are kind of two ways that you can see this going, and and that is that um, either. Trump leaves the White House. These protests are so serious that I think it either results in, in Trump leaving the White House, which is um, extremely unlikely, or mass suppression. You know, those are the kind of two options that I can see. And Trump is certainly indicating that he's in favour of, of mass suppression. And I think I'd add to that, you know, when Trump says that he will call in the military, there are often um, rebuttals to that to say that, you know, that's not legal. The president can't do that. The president isn't allowed to do that. And I, I would, I guess, caution against those kind of analyses because Trump has shown us that he's quite willing to act illegally and and I think you know if Trump does order in the military regardless of whether that's legal it's unlikely that the military are going to defy him you know we've seen the increasing militarization and securitization of American politics over decades that's why I think you know you see the NYPD as you were describing Amy basically ramming protests with their protesters with their cars it's why the NYPD has a budget in the billions you know not the millions the billions and and it's not the only police force like that these are these are police officers in in full military gear with military grade weapons that they're you know the Trump the Trump the president is suggesting they they train on peaceful protesters. So I think you know the fact that this is happening under now under Trump now it's not unprecedented these kind of protests. But having this kind of president in the White House at the time I think is something unprecedented, and that's what makes it I think extra frightening for those of us who are watching. Yes, and we've seen very real threats from Donald Trump uh, on Twitter and Twitter have actually stepped up for once um, and and started to take action on a few of Trump and the White House's official tweets. And one of them was uh, about, um, gosh, essentially glorifying violence. That's what um, Twitter characterised it as and said that um, they will cover it. Um, they won't delete it, but they'll cover it with a warning uh, because they believed that it was dangerous and that it also breached their community guidelines because uh, Trump said towards the end of this tweet, quote, any difficulty and we will assume control, but when the looting starts, the shooting starts. So we've seen some really blatant and direct um, language from the president. And we also saw prior to that, uh, the president tweeting about uh, views like like, um, for example, in California with postal voting, his belief that there would be widespread fraud, which is um, just not true, and uh, and Twitter then censoring those tweets and saying that they were misleading um, because obviously um, they believe that it's important to step in when an election is at stake, uh, given our previous history and learnings about uh, elections and 
interference and different ways that social media can be adopted to sway people. Um, But there has been a lot of use of the internet during these protests. And even last night, um, Anonymous was tweeting that there was some sort of uh, misinformation campaign about a DC blackout, a Washington DC blackout, where all the internet um, went dark, all the mobile signals um, went silent and live camera streams were off. And um, this was something that started to uh, create panic. But as you say, it's not all that... um, it's not all that kind of unlikely that this could actually happen, that that type of suppression might end up becoming a tool. What are your thoughts on on the kind of the environment that these protests are taking place in now in, you know, 2020 and also, I guess, in the midst of a global pandemic, which is still happening? It is. It is still happening, you know, despite the fact that Trump is apparently bored with this global pandemic, it is still very much happening. And I think that combined with these protests is is it's quite a scary prospect. Um, I think that the Twitter thing is really interesting because, as you say, Twitter has been a, a real, um, I guess, a leveller and it has assisted protests, it, it's assisted communication um, in this. And, and, you know, we can go back to kind of Egyptian uprisings a few years ago to look at the, the way that social media can facilitate these protests. But Trump has certainly used Twitter incredibly cleverly. You know, it has assisted his rise. And there's been pressure on Twitter for a long time to, I guess, as you say, to kind of censor his tweets or at least fact check them. Until now, they haven't done that because they they basically said that, yes, it's true, he's breaching our community guidelines with his tweets, but he's the president of the United States. So there is a, a kind of news and public interest in his tweets remaining uncensored. Of course, there's also a very much a commercial interest for Twitter in doing this, but the pressure kind of got too much, I suppose, in um, Trump's tweets, as you say, about um mail-in voting and suggesting that it would result in election fraud. So they've put these kind of fact checks checks on his tweets and then they they actually kind of actually completely censored his tweet about looters being shot. Um, The White House then, the White House account then retweeted that tweet or or copied and pasted the tweet and Twitter censored it again, further enraging the president. I, I, to be honest, I sort of, I don't really know what it means or what the implications will be of this yet. I know it has kind of enraged Trump or that's what we're hearing, but I wonder if it's also kind of playing into his hands in that it's supporting his arguments, as facetious as they are, about the, the censorship of, of right-wing and conservative voices on social media. So it's playing to his base in that sense. And I, I don't know if Twitter putting a fact check on is going to kind of change anybody's mind. And and while I, I absolutely do not have the answers to how you deal with this rife misinformation and, um, and election interference and fake news, I'm not sure that private tech companies taking taking it upon themselves to do the fact checking and to censor when they see fit is is the answer to this predicament Mm, yeah and um oh gosh it is so true that it is playing into his hands because you do see people whether they're bots or real it's sometimes hard to tell but you know you do get these replies of oh there you go we're vindicated everything you say is true um the media is against you social media is apparently against you um and he's the victim in all of this uh we saw an article um that just came out and i know there's a number of these but i just felt like it might capture some of the media's views um on the situation in vanity fair there's a headline man who spent the weekend in a bunch 
Lanka demands, quote, weak governors, quote, dominate protesters. And it ref- references a phone call, a conference call uh, between Donald Trump and a number of um, state governors. And of course, they are very important in um, the management of their states and controlling um, and cr- ensuring public order. And uh, he's essentially put pressure onto them um, to say, quote, if you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run you over. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. You have to dominate. He also said, um, that we can't be a pushover. We have all the resources. It's not like we don't have the resources. So I don't know what you're doing. And basically suggested that we need to, quote, arrest people, track people and put them in jail for 10 years. This is the kind of um, language that you would not hear from a president. And I wonder how state governors of varying political stripes might um, look at these comments and uh, whether that would sway them in any sense? Look, I, I mean, I don't think it would necessarily sway the, the governors. I think, you know, especially in the wake of the of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been a lot of talk about the way that Trump treats governors, you know, because he, he quite clearly treats Democratic governors differently to Republican governors and has been very clear that, you know, if, if those governors don't praise him, if they don't kind of bow down and thank their president, then they won't get as much help as, as other governors who do do that. So I think they're very conscious of what Trump is saying. And I think some of them are quite worried that he is going to, you know, come in and, and deploy the National Guard without their, without first consulting them. He's got an ongoing stoush, as, as we've discussed before, Amy, with, with Andrew Cuomo in in New York, um, saying and he's now saying that New York is not dealing with this very well. I do think he also likes to deflect blame to the governors. So he would like to say that, you know, this is all their fault. It's not, it's it's their problem. The reason this is out of control is because of them. It's got nothing to do with me. So that might be um, partly what's going on. And and it is, I think, interesting to see to the, how differently governors are reacting. A lot of them, as you say, are imposing curfews. Um, I know in in Los Angeles, there was a curfew imposed with only kind of 40 minutes notice for people to get home. Um, And and that has resulted in in many, many arrests and much more suppression of protests. I think some governors feel they have no choice but to do this for the safety of their their citizens. But as, as we've discussed, you know, many of these protests are peaceful. And I, I think that, that there aren't any governors that I can see that are well equipped to diffuse this situation because it is a national situation. It is mm. affecting the entire United States from coast to coast. So I don't I don't expect that, you know, an individual governor it will be able to to resolve this situation satisfactorily. Yes, and um, one of the issues that we've seen is that we've uh, seen attempts by the president to characterise people who are protesting under the banner of Black Lives Matter, um, being peacefully protesting. Uh, He's been labelling people like these uh, protesters under a banner of Antifa, which is apparently um, anti-fascists or anti-fascism as a kind of broad movement. Um, but he has decided to designate this as some kind of organised group, which it is not, um, and to say that he will classify Antifa as a terrorist organisation. Um, that seems to be pretty uh, extreme and also that it may have actual consequences in the sense that if there is no real definition of Antifa, then anyone uh, may end up being caught up into this net. 
That's right, and and this is that's exactly why I think some some um, I guess alt right and and conservative voices in Trump's ear have been asking him, encouraging him to do exactly this to to classify this organized so-called organization as a terrorist organization, um, which you know again technically I don't think he can do, but that's not necessarily going to stop him. I think you know this plays into. Um, a long, a much longer history of both anti-Semitic and and racist tropes, where Trump is suggesting that these protests, um, which are, as you say, uh, you know, dominated by Black Lives Matter, by No Justice, No Peace, these are in response to racist police um, actions. To classify these as controlled by outside, often you know, by a kind of Jewish globalist conspiracy, which is both, of course, anti-Semitic, but also you know, plays into racist tropes about black people not being able to think for themselves and not being able to organise themselves and being controlled by um, white people. So that's kind of all wrapped up in this discussion, which again plays very much to Trump's base and plays very much to that kind of current of white supremacy that we're seeing in the United States. And it also allows, of course, it also allows Trump to say, none of this is my fault. You know, everybody loves me. I'm the most popular Republican president since Abraham Lincoln. I'm the best president in the history of everything. And and all of these protests are, are a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy against me by Democrats to take me down. So it, it both racist and serves to delegitimize the kind of the broader cause, the broader anger and desires behind these protests. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking with Dr. Emma Shortis and we're talking about US politics. Just finally, Emma, there are a couple of um, issues that have been brought up or created really uh, by Donald Trump and his administration. And those two are number one, uh, America and Trump, of course, announcing that uh, they will be leaving the World Health Organization and removing their funding and participation in that body, which is a UN body, and also um, that they want to expand the G7 into the G10 or the G11, including countries like Russia, South Korea, Australia, and India. Um, Now, this is, you know, also disrupting a lot of conventions, um, diplomatic conventions, political conventions. And um, it seems like Donald Trump is further and further isolating America from, uh, I guess, the the common way of doing things, the right general, uh, I guess, agreed upon way of doing things, the consensus view. What is your um, take on these developments and how that um, positions America in in response to and in relation to other countries? Yeah, I think his his threat to withdraw from the WHO is a is a an important one. You know, it's not surprising because it ties right into his kind of America first rhetoric. It serves to deflect blame for what's happening in the United States to the WHO. It has significant consequences of course, for that organisation because the US provides a significant portion of its budget. So it, it will affect the WHO's ability to deal with this pandemic and possible future pandemics. So I think it's significant in that sense. The G7 is interesting, I think, trying to expand that. I, I think mostly to include Russia. It seems like including those other countries you mentioned is is more of a screen in order to get mm. Putin to the G7. Um, so it will be interesting to see what what happens there? You know, I mean, if I'm a world leader invited to one of those things, I, I don't think I'd want to go to the US purely because of the risk to my health. So it would be very interesting to see, you know, who takes up that invitation. I mean, having said that, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison has already said that, of course, Australia will accept. Um, so Trump is certainly seeking to to remake international relations in his image. 
whether he succeeds or not will be an interesting question. And I think, you know, it is entirely possible that he will be consumed by domestic events. You know, I'm not sure he will be able to focus on the international because the, the G7 is still a little while away. And, you know, as we know, anything can happen in a couple of days in the United States. I'm sure things have developed as we've been speaking. So yes. I, I suppose <laughs> we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it is literally developing every minute. So um, it's hard to keep up. <laughs> thank, sure is. thank you so much, Emma, for talking about uh, these really important issues with us. I'm so grateful and uh, I hope you are doing well. And um, yeah, let's see how this all pans out. Yeah, thanks for having me, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.